This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Golden Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, as we recorded, is the morning after the Golden Globe Awards, which came back and aired on NBC and went pretty well, which we're going to get into, uh, much to our surprise in new, many ways, I think. We're also recording moments after the announcement of the SAG Award nominations, which is an award show that will be airing on YouTube. It really is quite a time for uh, award shows changing before our eyes. We'll talk about the Golden Globes and the SAG nominations and everything that means as Oscar voting kicks off this week as you hear this. Um, so, David, I'm going to start with you because you were in the room for us at the Golden Globes. It was a little bit of a process to get in the room and get your ticket. But then once you sat down, I'm wondering if you saw the pretty entertaining and fun award show that we all watched at home. Did you know movie stars love dressing up and drinking champagne and saying hi to each other and winning gold <laughs> trophies? Because <laughs> I kind of forgot that. Um, but they really do. Um, that's honestly my review of being inside the room is that experience was back. They were happy. <laughs> uh, they were a little delirious because there was no food on the tables and there was way too much booze on the table. So Mike White was, was right. He, he didn't just get, miss out on dinner. So, so here's the thing. There were chicken club sandwiches in the bar, but the bar is all the way in the back. And if you're Mike White or, say, Steven Spielberg, you're sitting in the front of the ballroom. So the journey to the bar is about a 15-minute walk, and they don't let you back on the ballroom floor outside of commercial breaks. So then you have to stand back. So they're not going to get chicken club sandwiches. So they were starving because they had to starve. Well, an enterprising young journalist could perhaps go get them some chicken sandwiches, you know? Just saying, missed opportunity. <laughs> next time, next time, I had to focus on my own chicken sandwich. Obtaining. Although you did spot one, at least one uh, star who got stuck in the back. I don't know if he was getting sandwiches, but was definitely uh, ferrying some drinks for people. Oh, uh, Glenn Powell, three look like gin and tonics. I don't, you know, it could have been anything, but that was what I'd like to pretend they were. Um, no, people definitely went to the bar. It just you had to choose to go to the bar, and you know, if you did that, God knows when you would come back. I saw. Um, Paris Barclay, the director, was getting a little impatient because he was not allowed to walk back to his seat for quite a while. Wow. Um, so, Richard, you reviewed the show for us at the end of the night. And I, as you were saying right before we recorded, I think you were watching, as I did throughout it, being like, wait, this is going pretty well. Wait, these winners are pretty good. Wait, the Golden Globes are are kind of back. Is that still how you're feeling the morning after? I mean, it's been a few years now of gritted teeth while watching televised award shows, you know, from the well-intentioned but 
I thought off-tone uh, train station Oscars to the last year's Oscars, which felt like the People's Choice Awards for some reason. <laughs> uh, the stage was too low, as I've said 4,000 times. Um, this felt like a proper show like from before times, you know, and in some ways that arrives with a cynical clang because it's like, well, darn it, the HFPA pulled it off and made us not forget, but sort of put aside the problems that have, you know, long plagued that organization because it was just so refreshing to see something that felt normal. And so that was the, that was the good part of it. You know, is it like, I genuinely enjoyed myself. I thought minus some awkward moments, perhaps with Jared Carmichael's more pointed jokes and, you know, a few loopy speeches, like I thought, but you kind of expect, you kind of want that too. You know, that's part of the experience. I thought it was, um, they did a good job and, you know, it went, I think about as well, as the embattled HFPA could have hoped. I thought that a quote that Angela Bassett gave backstage in the press room, I'm I'm honestly not clear how many winners were asked about, you know, whether or not they debated coming. I think we wondered for a long time how many nominees would actually show up. And she was basically like, look, they've done the work that they need to do to be worth worthy of this comeback. And that seemed to be the prevailing attitude I saw there. I mean, Rebecca, you've you've been talking to people around town. Like, were people willing to put their faith in the HFPA and was it rewarded? I mean, it it definitely felt like everyone was willing to give it a chance. And I do think it was rewarded. I mean, there's still conversations, obviously, to be had about what has actually changed. But I think looking at who won, it makes you feel like maybe this new voting body, you know, is more in line with what we would expect and and hope for with um, a, a voting group with this much power to sort of influence, you know, who wins. So I'm optimistic. I think we all, like you're saying, really enjoyed seeing a show that the Globes has always been known for being sort of the drunk uncle show where it's just like everyone is toasted and and gives these insane speeches. And they gave us that back um, by withholding the food. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> a cruel strategy, but it worked. <laughs> Very little water on the tables, I'll add. Very little. You know, my, I, like Mike White said, I mean, you could feel that energy. But I think a lot of that energy also comes from the fact that some of these winners were so exciting. Like, we were all excited to see Key win and Angela Bassett and to to and Michelle Yeoh and feel them really enjoy this moment, even if there are still questions about how you know legitimate these awards are. It it did feel like these are people who have been waiting a long time to to mm-hmm. receive that acknowledgement, and I think we can enjoy that, and at the same time still you know want to hold a group accountable. I thought that was reflected well in in Ryan Murphy's speech, which was kind of unexpectedly stirring when he was pointing out, you know, all of these queer and trans uh, actors he's worked with over the years and highlighting their stories. Um, when he had Michaela J. Rodriguez stand up and he said, you know, she was the first trans actor to win a Golden Globe, but they didn't televise it. So I just want her to have that moment. And it felt very, you know, not just meaningful for Rodriguez, but for everyone in the room. And it's like, that's the thing about the Golden Globes is despite who might be giving them out, it is a chance to be sort of publicly lauded, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. that's not just something that actors want. A lot of people in this world (laughs) would appreciate (laughs) that moment. And what a bummer it must be to like get that recognition. And yet it's not, you know, it doesn't have the, the audience. You know, it just it does matter. And I think that we could look at that in a sort of mocking way, like, oh, look, all the celebrities, they sure showed up minus a few. Um, They're just so attention hungry. But look, this is hard work in some variety of hard work. And it is nice to have a night where you can celebrate that. And, uh, you know, I can't deny them that. And if if you're Michelle Yeoh or Angela Bassett, who are contending for the Oscar as well, they're definitely in that conversation. 
Um, and you have been waiting a really long time for recognition like this. And you look at actors who were winning Globes in 2017, 2016, with people who knew what was going on with the HFPA by and large and who happily accepted those awards anyway. I think that there is a feeling of, well, why, am I, why would I have my moment taken away when mm. they've improved versus how Hollywood turned a blind eye for so long as mostly white actors were honored. So I think in tandem with broader industry shifts that we've seen, that the Academy has had to make, that studios have had to make, it makes sense to me that especially those actors would take their moment and make this a signal of change and a signal of, if you want this group to mean something now, put people like us up on the stage. I think that's a really powerful statement, actually. It really felt like Angela Bassett and Ki Hui Kwan, who won the first two awards of the night, I think they were the first two, um, they really set the tone because they were both mm-hmm. just really thankful and ebullient. And Angela Bassett was reading off her phone, which I'm not crazy about. She can pull it off because she's Angela Bassett and she has this like <laughs> tone. You know, she narrates the Ryan Murphy tribute later in the night. And you're like, oh, my God, her voice has so much power. Um, but they, yeah, they were just really straightforwardly thankful. And I think that kind of cleared the path after that drug Carmichael monologue, which was pretty uh, biting toward the HFPA for everyone to say, no, this is my moment and I'm going to take it and, and we're going to move on from here. Um, and people seem kind of relieved to be able to do that. It was biting toward the HFPA, his monologue, but also at the end when he talked about the money, it was sort of a gentle indictment of the whole industry in a way. Like, mm. well, the money trumps all. And you can do that in a less morally compromised position than some other, you know, choices. But like, you know, I think I think he aptly kind of referenced what makes the industry work, you know, and uh, at root. And that was, you know, and then I think he kind of lost the audience later in the evening. Um, I thought his joke about Tom Cruise giving back his globes was refreshingly daring, if not exactly targeted. I think that in a weird way, Carmichael did the hard and necessary job of like, okay, let's get it all out there, and then Bassett and Quan could um, give everyone else permission to enjoy themselves. Yeah, he did lose the room. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, David, about like because the uh, him coming back and asking everyone to quiet down. Like I've been to at least enough award shows to know it's so hard to get people to shut up. Uh, is that why he lost the room, or, or what happened there? I, I think it's a combination of the fact that people were having a good time, um, and so they did need to quiet down. And even before the cameras were rolling, he was coming out about fifteen seconds earlier, pleading with people to quiet down unsuccessfully. Mm. And his style as a comic, which is not to say he's, you know, too barbed or anything like that, but he's a little bit more intimate. I mean, he literally sat down in his opening monologue, um, which echoed his special Rathaniel for me. And as it's getting noisier and louder and boozier, I just don't think he had the sort of loudness, the noisiness to match that. And that Mm. became his challenge was he's trying to do something a little bit more considered maybe. And especially in the back half of an award show, like the golden globes, it's just very, very difficult to do that. There were definitely some jokes that didn't go over as well, but my perception of what was going on was people were just kind of tuning him out because he wasn't able to overtake the vibe in the room really. It's interesting because I felt like even the cameras didn't know what to do with him sometimes. Like when he was pacing in the opening, like, we were just sort of seeing him from the side and it just felt like the camera and we're like, would this man please stand still? Like it just, <laughs> they just, I mean, and I, and I think 
there was no way he could come out and do a sort of show and dance. You know what I mean? That's not his style, first of all. And that would be, look insane to do a traditional um, hosting gig with this show in particular. So I think it worked. But I, I can totally see what you're saying, David, that he just doesn't have the style of like a, a Kimmel or whatever to hold a room mm-hmm. like that as they get progressively drunker. I, I think it's a, a level of fame, to be honest. You know, uh, Jared yeah, Carmichael too, is a great comic. His show, The Carmichael Show, was great. Rothaniel was great. But like, you know, he's kind of a little more niche at this point than Tina Fey and Amy Poehler or Ricky Gervais even. What I did like also, aside from the jokes of Carmichael's um, hosting job, was there were certain times when he would introduce a presenter and just be very earnest about how much he liked the, mm. the actor, you know? Um, and I thought that was nice. I thought that that seemed like, oh, so he's not totally sneering at this. Like, he is a fan of of the work of people in the room. And um, I think that counts for something. I actually thought he struck that tone throughout better than almost any host I've seen. Like, even in the opening monologue, he had that sort of abrupt turn, but I bought it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It seemed very genuine to me that, you know, he believed in, you know, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with people like Bassett and Yo. It's like, he believed in what they were doing, and he was not going to let them off the hook. And, you know, that's the best tone I think you can strike at the Comeback Golden Globe Awards. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Uh, should we talk some more about some of the winners? We've we've hit on a couple of them. I think Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hui Kwan, Angela Bassett to some extent maybe we expected as a winner, although that supporting actress category is still kind of fuzzy. Um, but I really came away thinking about the Fablemans um, and wondering what that bump from Spielberg winning and then winning Best Drama um, could mean as, again, Oscar voting opens this week. Um, I feel really bullish on it, but I know that the Golden Globes voting body is very different. I don't know how much that means. I do. Does anyone want to shoot me down and say that the Fableman's bump isn't as real as I'm maybe hoping it is? I agree with you, Katie. I felt like seeing them on stage, seeing Spielberg on stage made me just be like, this would totally make sense on the Oscar stage. And I, I think we all felt that film had a very solid start and it feels like the kind of movie that voters would love. But I think this really helped it feel like, oh, yes, Spielberg deserves this moment. And I think voters are sort of reminded of that seeing this happen. And oddly, to the Fableman's advantage, in a way, is that somehow Everything Everywhere didn't win Best Comedy. And you kind of were expecting that, because there was obviously the Quan moment, the Yo moment, so that, that, that movie was well represented. But like, I kind of thought there would be this big moment for that movie as a whole at the end of the show. Mm. And there wasn't. And so they lost out one televised opportunity to, like the CODA team, like show everyone on stage together, you know, that kind of thing. Um, instead, it went to Banshees. Um, 
so I don't know. I think maybe in some, not that the HFPA's voting is reflective really of the academies, but like the TV of it all matters, I think to yeah. some extent. And, um, you know, Banshee's edged out everything, which I think only benefited Fablemans. At the Fablemans after party, because yes, Surprise indeed, there after party. Yeah. Yes, indeed, there were <laughs> after parties. <laughs> I love the idea of Steven Spielberg like texting everybody like guys let's go let's go <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what happened um, it was weirdly at the you. Abbey <laughs> <laughs> and Paul Dano had a great time at the Abbey <laughs> um, it was it, the ghost of 1917 was looming oh, it was wow. brought up I heard it brought up multiple times uh, that was a universal film that won Best Picture at the Golden Globes and Best Director. Um, they definitely thought at least coming out of that, they had directors sewn up. And, of course, Parasite ended up sweeping. And I think this there was a similar feeling um, where it's a really good sign and you have a iconic filmmaker, I think in this case especially iconic relative to Sam Mendes, um, getting a beautiful embrace. Um, but then the question is, as you shift to the industry, does that hold? Um, and you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but we did have SAG nominations today. Fableman's missed a big nomination, um, whereas Everything Everywhere and Banshees, if anything, overperformed. So yeah. I, I think that the question remains, who is the frontrunner personally? Um, but I think that you now have those three films pretty solidified as in the top tier. It made me return to the idea that maybe Fablemans wouldn't win Best Picture, but that Steven Spielberg is kind of sitting yeah. there as a very clear Best Director I think favorite. So. Um, and my whole thing is always that he hasn't, he's only won Best Picture once, which is bananas. Um, and it doesn't seem like it's going to fix this, but a third Best Director statue would not be un- undeserved. And his speech, like, really got to me. Just the idea of this this guy who's like stood atop the industry for 40 years being like, only now have I shown you who I am. Like, this is mm-hmm. me really opening myself up. It's really, you can see how much the movie means to him. And Tony Kushner is kind of there as this like cheerleader and slash therapist by his side watching the speech. Um, <laughs> Quite a cheerleader uh, therapist to have. <laughs> know, we should all be so lucky. Um, but Rebecca, like you said, made me think like, yeah, I just want to see him hold the Oscar and do that same speech again. It is striking to see a director in his mid to late 70s who's had what, the career he has be like, so I finally made a movie that's honest about me, <laughs> you know, like four decades into a career. But it didn't feel in a way that like everything I've made in the past has been some sort of, you know, prevaricating lie or whatever. No, it was just like, this is his most personal film to date. And I think that resonated with people um, because some friends remarked to me last night saying, you know, over text, like, I don't think that I've ever heard him talk like this, you know, mm-hmm. um, He's certainly been interviewed many times and been on award stages many times. But in the past, it was like the political righteousness of Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. It wasn't really about him so much. Um, So this felt different. I also have to say, Kihi Kwan's um, sweet way of talking about Spielberg is only helping Spielberg's case. I know! It's just like, there's a picture of them hugging at the show that's been going around, and the way he, he was the first person Key mentioned when he did his acceptance speech. Like, it just makes him... I don't know. The, this It's just like sweetness overload for me. And I, I love it so much. <laughs> and Michelle Yeoh shouted him out, too, because he produced Memoirs of a Geisha, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot yeah, of love I for him. I had to really uh, do some Googling. I could not figure out how she had worked with him in the past. I didn't know that. So good for them. Um, should we talk about Kate Blanchett for a second? Because Michelle Yeoh had her big, great speech that we talked about. Kate Blanchett was not there. Uh, they're both nominated at SAG, which we'll get to. Was this a missed opportunity for her to dominate the room? Does it matter? Um... Is Kate Blanchett one who dominates a room? I don't know. I mean, she can. She can. Harsher can. I I think honestly, this was 
illustrative of what this race is, which is if you look at, you know, the top critics awards, Kate Blanchett has all but swept them. She has, I think, that part of this race in her corner, um, the sort of like undeniability, you know, this tour de four performance. Uh, and Michelle's appeal is more emotional and more career driven. And so seeing her on that stage um, give such an incredible speech and speak so eloquently to how amazing of a career she's had in her own right, uh, even though it took her a long time to get on a stage like that, uh, is exactly the kind of boost she needs. Whereas with Kate, I don't know that it would make that much of a difference, if that if that makes sense. I, mm. I think the people who are voting for Kate Blanchett don't really care about her speech, whereas I think Michelle Yeoh it matters a lot more. So I think if anything, it just affirmed this is a real race. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over on, on Saturday, I voted for the National Society of Film Critics and Blanchett won um, as did Kui Kwan, which means they both have now swept the so-called, I mean, Twitter told me this is what it's called, the trifecta of New York, Los Angeles and National Society of, Societies of Film Critics. Um, and, you know, Blanchett was at the the critics, the New York Critics Circle dinner uh, last week or two weeks ago and uh, gave a nice long speech having just gotten off a plane. I don't know if that's the same energy that works in the Golden Globes room, you know, and I don't know if it was necessary, whereas, yeah, it was great that Yo had that moment. But like they're they're telling two very different stories, yeah. um, even though Yo has done well with critics groups as well. And I think that's what kind of makes the upcoming Oscars so exciting is that these are two really viable contenders coming from very different angles, very different films. And um, I'm, I look forward to it. Yeah. It's the rare case where you could even see easily one of them winning SAG and the other winning the Oscar. Like, I think yeah. this will be down to the mm. end. Yeah. I wonder if Yo wins Critics' Choice on Sunday. Um, and yes. just, um, just thinking of the makeup of that group and maybe being a little bit more uh, primed toward everything ever all at once. And if that shifts some momentum in some way or is just kind of a ping pong match continuing. Do we feel the same way about Best Actor now that Colin Farrell and Austin Butler, uh, as I think we expected, both got to give their speeches. Brendan Fraser as wasn't there, uh, was nominated for The Whale. Um, I think he's still very much in the running, but the, the idea of it being really between Butler and Farrell feels pretty solidified for me now. Well, Katie, you you approached me over the weekend dressed like the old lady in Banshees of Innershin and, and sort of <laughs> pointed a gnarled finger at me and prophetically said that you think Austin Butler is going to win the whole thing. That's true. Yeah, um, I have that power. It was, it was creepy considering you live states away. I don't know how you got here. But um, um, but yeah, I don't know. I After last night, I was like, I think Katie and other people might be onto something there um, because Farrell is a nice choice uh, for, you know, a best actor at the Oscars. But like, I don't know if it's quite the same that 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 movie engenders quite the same excitement even though elvis didn't win anything else right that's the big town and 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 um bohemian rhapsody did at the globes um yeah, win best yeah picture. Right. um but i don't know i just something about butler even though he sounds so crazy um <laughs> i watched carrie diaries he didn't talk like that on that show um i think if you didn't watch any of his teen stuff it doesn't mean anything like cause i'd like his voice doesn't bother me at all because yeah. i like didn't i was gonna say it's a generation gap but we're the same age richard so it's a carrie diaries gap I guess. yeah I just, I just happen to watch the carrie diaries a lot um so i don't know again but i get that also feels like a fun close race i bizarrely think that Fraser is the one who's really fallen off and who knows maybe Sags will tell a different story but uh, maybe it could become a three-person race but Butler really needed that last night and and he certainly got it and delivered um, even if he was a little rude to the pianist 
And then Gerard Carmichael had to explain that it wasn't her. Yeah, it was a yeah. recording. She seemed fine. I think, I think she did a great job. Oh, the, the gorgeous like, concert pianist who got <laughs> paid a lot of money to play at the Globes. Yeah, I think she was okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if we see Fraser give an acceptance speech at SAG or Critics Choice, Critics Choice, that will make us have to redo this conversation yes. again. Yeah, <laughs> because it does. He has a story to tell, and I think can give a speech that people will be talking about for a long time. So, uh, but it does feel like Austin had a huge boost last night and and was just like you know you saw a billion people wanted to take selfies with him like he's just he's just in this huge moment for a film that voters really really love and so it does i don't know maybe it's a three man race that's i'm not I think mad it's a three man it. race yeah. i don't i don't think race. i don't think brendan is out of this at all that is my current feeling hung chow also got in for sag so there's yeah. a certain affection for the movie I think he's going to win somewhere. I really do. I just I would be surprised if he went this whole season without winning anything. And I think once it would be a shame if he did too. Honestly, like he's got yeah. so much attention at such a comeback moment. I think he deserves to have that moment. I think it's just that Banshees and uh, Elvis just appeal to the HFPA specific taste that much more. You know, mm, totally. Yeah. Uh, big musical biopic, uh, and then a film that's not American but stars someone they've definitely you know they've given an award to before from the same you know from the same director like that was cozy for the HFP to vote for. Whereas Fraser maybe was just one step down from that. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a few Golden Globes things before we move on fully to SAG. Um, first of all, does anyone know what musical Amanda Seyfried is developing? Has anyone <laughs> cracked this code? The great mystery of the evening. Everyone's <laughs> super it. busy on things we've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope Kevin Costner's house is okay. <laughs> what is Kate shooting in the UK? Just, <laughs> if it's Mamma Mia 3, Amanda Seyfried will delight the world. Um, but the thing I really want to talk about, because uh, Fran Hoffner at uh, Gawker wrote something about Brad Pitt's presence in the front row and referenced us, which is not the only reason I want to talk about it um but the idea of him being kind of in the mayor of hollywood position like basically the jack nicholson role where everyone keeps talking about him and the camera keeps cutting to him and he was kind of a a subdued presence there which i I can't really imagine him doing anything otherwise but how do you guys feel about brad pitt's role in the as in the show craft of the golden globes well he's the biggest movie star in the room in most rooms in that room in all rooms (laughs) and i mean that's that was the where the will smith spot was at mm. the Oscars, it's the it's just there's this, always this one spot where everybody's eyeballs who take who gets on the stage they just look right at you and they always put a giant movie star there and Lady Gaga uh, Lady had Gaga. that role <laughs> yeah. favorite yeah. year yeah just like and and he's I'm sure been in that spot before and and did what he needed to do I mean I, you know on social media you see a lot of people commenting on you know all the reports and the divorce proceedings and legal proceedings that are going on behind the scenes. But it it sounds like in the room, it's just one of the things where your eyeballs fall on Brad Pitt and you have to say something about him. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting position. I mean, is maybe that's good for Babylon's energy, um, its momentum or something. Um, although I did notice when they were announcing the Best Picture nominees, Babylon got very little applause. Maybe that was it just did. the audio. Can but, confirm. No, can okay. confirm. That, was, uh, that felt very like that was pointed or in some ways or something even though Hurwitz had won earlier in the night and people seemed excited about that i think he's clearly lucked in the industry but like he's won four golden globes yeah that's, i mean so have i it's not that hard but he's like, younger yeah. than me that's crazy <laughs> um but yeah i don't know i mean th- I-, I felt a little uneasy about it just because of what you you referenced rebecca with the the behind the scenes stuff but um you know i don't know maybe the 
people in that room just weren't paying attention to that or, or they were just caught up in the moment. But again, that speaks, you know, people wanted to have those kind of silly awards moments. Like everyone mm. was eager to like do a normal uh, award show. Well, they also kept talking about Rihanna, too. She's maybe She was maybe in the uh, other role of major star. Though it seems like maybe she had left by the time everyone started talking about Brad Pitt. Yeah. I kind of foolishly didn't quite see Natu Natu coming as, like, the threat to Rihanna, Lady Gaga, blah, 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 in, in original song. And it's like, now that he's won, that song has won, I'm like, oh, well, that's totally going to win at the Oscars. That was a weird moment where when it won, I cheered really loudly and the room just wasn't having it. <laughs> <laughs> just David. <laughs> it was just me. I was thrilled. And everyone was expecting a giant star to get on that stage. Especially because Rihanna walked in and it was truly like all the heads turned just before the category. Anyway, I was thrilled about it. And those who in, those who uh, sensed that the room was not super excited about it were correct. Uh, for I don't know why, but Guess they got to go see RRR. I agree that it being a um, a song contender, though, because like if really the main con- competition is Lady Gaga, who won this category four or five years ago, like give it to Natu Natu, get them to perform on stage for God's sake. They keep saying they will, and you know you can imagine everyone at the Academy just like you know doing whatever wishing they have to do to make it happen. I I don't know if you guys saw, but over the weekend there was some LA screening of RRR, yeah. and it was like. A huge dance party like I just this movie is just really winning people over and has I don't know I think and and when you think about the Academy being more international than it's ever been and I I I feel like it might win best song if not get a bunch of nominations that we maybe aren't expecting it's it's really is is it the one I mean we talked about all quiet on the western front last week like is it is it the best picture uh international threat we should be looking maybe there won't be one just one maybe it'll be like really (laughs) the whole rest of the world gets two spots in the best picture (laughs) line I'm Bobby Finger and I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about the SAG nominations, which we've, you know, been referencing throughout this conversation. They came out Wednesday morning, hours after the Golden Globes ended. A lot of the same people um, from the Globes repeated at the SAGs, but maybe we should just talk about the surprises. I'm very proud of uh, Little Goldman guest Adam Sandler, who really got his start on this podcast. <laughs> I'm proud um, of you, Katie. Yeah, we, we discovered him. He's just, he's just I, unknown I know, New he York was actor. nowhere yeah. until we talked to him. Um, you know, he's been everywhere. We've talked about this. I don't know if it's on, on the show or amongst ourselves. You know, he's been on a bunch of roundtables. He was on our show, of course. Um, and his hustle on behalf of Hustle uh, paid off. I was so excited to see that. 
I was I told you, Katie, that I, I view Adam Sandler's nomination as while he's still in the hunt for an Oscar nomination, a great sign for an actor like Paul Mescal, who SAG would never recognize, but there's this really wide open fifth slot in Best Actor, and they didn't go the fact that they didn't go with like a Tom Cruise mm. or even a Hugh Jackman who's just been kind of hovering as that option that I don't think is viable. <laughs> um it, it indicates to me that maybe the Academy will go with a, a smaller choice, a more indie discovery choice and he is definitely the one who fits that bill do you say sag would never go to paul mescal because it's a smaller movie because it's not an american movie all of the above all of the above okay it's just not i mean unless that movie were like a top tier content it's just yeah it's not in that category in that vein i don't think also the screen actors guild is really upset about the phoebe bridger situation and you know they're just it's the a TikTok lot. contingent <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, oh, right exactly yeah the, the infamous TikTok contingent. <laughs> I think Best Actress went a weird way for me, you know? Yeah. Um, Michelle Williams not being on that list and instead Ana de Armas being on there, uh, that was surprising. Uh, I love that Viola Davis is in there, Daniel Dudweiler, ditto. I don't know who wins among those. I mean, I think it's still down to Blanchett and Yo, but like, I don't know. That Even though Fableman's got a Best Ensemble and Dano got nominated in uh, in supporting, um, not seeing Williams there, that 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 makes it a shock. Yeah, does anyone have a theory on what happened there? I mean, she's so well-liked and respected by actors. I, I, I don't know if people just felt like Anna had to do something that any other actor would have been like, God, please don't make me ever have to do a role like that. That right. they gave it to her and they just had to respect what she went through. But it that one is definitely a mystery. Is it? I don't know how the SAG voting works, but is it possible that like half of the people put her down for supporting and half put her in lead and then she didn't end up in either? No, they're they're positioned. They, they are, are they're okay. submitted okay. Uh, for one. I think that this was a. Ca- I actually think this is a really interesting considered set of nominations. You know, the fact that the Woman King didn't make ensemble, but Viola Davis still made it in, speaks to I think the power of that performance. And I do think this is a case where that performance. I've I've heard a few not vibe with it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. In a movie that they cl- the SAG clearly liked overall, um, got into best ensemble. Um, which was no guarantee, I, I would say. Whereas and a great you, pick for that movie. It's, it is really a great ensemble movie, even if it's not discussed in that oh, way Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think you see with Deadweiler and Darmus especially, movies that are not in the conversation outside of those lead performances, but SAG going to bat for them a little bit and saying these are performances that own their respective movies that especially Bond was very divisive, um, but that they kind of rise above them or elevate them. And I, I think that this was a group of actors recognizing performances that take charge of their movie. And I, to your point, Richard, Michelle may have been submitted as a lead here and you could only vote for her as a lead, but she's not the face of that movie. And this has been the conversation around this placement the whole time in the way that every nominee in this category is, even Viola Davis, um, who may actually have less percentage of screen time in her movie than Michelle Williams does, but I think it's just a matter of of positioning. And with the Fablemans, it's always been tricky because this is the Spielberg family portrait. Um, whereas with Woman King, I think it was like Viola Davis leading an army, and those optics are a little different. And I actually think that's what you see reflected here. So if Williams had played Sammy Fableman instead, it would have been fine. Sure. She would have been... Which she can do. Oh, I mean, absolutely. absolutely. Conversations about who can play what role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she'd be phenomenal. 
Um, should we talk about Paul Dano then being uh, the only solo Fablemans nominee? Which, you know, if you go back to Toronto where Judd Hirsch gets a standing ovation mid-film, I don't shoot, I'm not sure anyone would have seen that coming. Uh, Eddie Redmayne got in for Good Nurse. Do we imagine the Oscars might put Judd Hirsch in that spot if the Fablemans really is surging? Or is it is Dano now the one? I think I think Hirsch could easily take Dano's spot. I mean, this, yeah. this oh, they, was they the Belfast. Con- yeah. Possibly. This this is what happened with Belfast. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a different kind of voting group. And I think with the Academy, they're definitely more they would be more inclined to vote for someone like Hirsch than SAG, which is a younger, much broader body body of voters. I think that Judd Hirsch has a lot more there's a lot more sentiment for him in the Academy. Um not to say this isn't great news for Paul Dano. I think that Honestly, the best bet is probably that both could get in. Um, so two sets in supporting actor, assuming that Barry Kogan and Brendan Gleeson are locked, which I think they are. Yeah, I mean, that that can happen, you know. Power of the Dog uh, got Jesse Plemons in there at the end when, you know, if you have a really strong contender, it can just kind of take up a lot of space in the end. Well, then they all cancel each other out and Kihui Kwan sails even even more cleanly to victory. Yeah, he laps the complete entirely. Um, <laughs> he's the only nominee. <laughs> our, uh, our sort of sibling podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, was talking about this recently, the sort of Netflix effect. Um, and Netflix has not done terribly well this award season thus far. But like, it's interesting that Sandler and Redmayne are both in there. Do we think that's just because voters can just watch that easily at home? Like, they don't even have to go to a screener. It's just on Netflix. And Armas. Yeah. And yeah, and on Adarmus, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But I do I do think Sandler and Redmayne especially are really getting out there. Like yeah. I think Sandler was on every single round table actors on actors thing that happened mm-hmm. this year and um Redmayne has been out there too. And I, I just think that really helps them both get on these lists. And I, I don't know, I feel like Redmayne or either of them could probably be on the Oscar list and we wouldn't be that surprised at this point. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the Netflix effect, the fact that Glass Onion didn't make it here at all really bummed me out. Um, you know, you talk about an ensemble. I think that movie was so clearly in that conversation. And Janelle Monet was kind of the big hope for that as well. I'm not sure what that means for Glass Onion's chances, um, but it, it felt like a big blow for them today. I don't think it's anything good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it just it felt like I was almost sure it would make it in. Yeah. Um, and I actually thought this would be a big moment for Janelle, too. So, yeah, I, I don't really know what happened there. I think it's says a lot that Women Talking made it in over Glass Onion because Women Talking is a much smaller, more difficult movie, but it did pull it out. Whereas Glass Onion is, you know, it's fun. It's a good time. It's a bunch of stars, many of whom are giving great performances. It seemed kind of like a slam dunk, especially with the amount that, you know, to what we were saying, Netflix put into it. This is a huge campaign. And that really paid off for a lot of these individual nominations for them. Um, but it did not here. And that after it also missed a lot of BAFTA long list mentions, so far the industry has not weighed in particularly favorably for this movie, at least as a Best Picture contender. Yeah, and it, it does feel like um, individual supporting acting noms for women talking are are, are, are fading fast. I mean, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. so excited to see Stephanie Hsu get that nomination along with Jamie Lee Curtis. I think there's been a lot of talk about can they both get a spot and this feels like a good sign for that. But, it, you know, there's so many great performances in that Women Talking movie and, and I feel like it's it's kind of a bummer those have faded so fast. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like whatever that spot would have been was taken by Hong Chow uh, for The Whale, which is, you know, we she's also been on Little Gold Men. Uh, we've talked about her as being a real standout in that movie and potentially being able to ride the coattails of Brenda Fraser, who's kind of a guaranteed nominee at this point. Um, I'm really excited to see her, even if I miss women talking in this category like you, Rebecca. 
At least they get to go. <laughs> I was <laughs> worried. True. I was worried for it. Well, and you know, they get the ensemble nomination. You get people like Judith Ivy and Sheila McCarthy who aren't going to get individual nominations. So it's yeah. sort of a um, a big victory anyway. Yeah, and they're also winning the Robert Altman Award at the Spirit Awards. So right. the ensemble has really been recognized. Um, as you've been saying since Telluride when they were traveling as a pack. All or nothing. <laughs> Are we going to go a whole season and Jamie Lee Curtis won't give a wild speech? I, I want that she to happen. She came close talking to Eddie Murphy. Uh, was that planned? <laughs> I, I don't think that was planned. She was on the list of presenters. She was. Oh, okay. But there was a moment in, there was some confusion in the room about, there was a moment early on where some people, I don't know, I just overheard it. People thought she was going on. They played the Halloween they, theme. And then I yeah, think Jenna yeah, Ortega yeah. showed so up. I wonder if they shifted when she appears. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but she was planned as a presenter, at least. She had a great reaction to Michelle Yeoh winning that um, maybe was our little taste of um, Jamie Lee Curtis energy at that show. Also a great reaction to Bassett winning. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Oh, there was a, a quick cut to a not very happy face. But oh, no. um, maybe that <laughs> well, was just me projecting. But I, I don't know. I just want one Melissa Leo 40 minute long speech from Jamie Lee Curtis this year. I don't care. I think what. That, was, that was the Jennifer Coolidge slot at the Globe this, yes, this year. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it kind of feels like Bassett is a an easy front runner to imagine winning a lot of these going forward. But Critics' Choice may tell a different tale. I don't know. So if a Marvel movie wins an acting Oscar, the people complaining that Marvel doesn't get respect can finally be quiet, right? Oh, yes, they'll 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 be satisfied. They'll accept that and move on, right? (laughs) (laughs) They're famous for accepting reality. (laughs) (laughs) It is, this would be, I mean, in some ways, like, yes, a a very respected veteran being the first Marvel actor to win an Oscar or be nominated for an Oscar um, does make sense. But just the the trajectory of her campaign has been so fascinating um, and continues to be really fun to watch. Well, talking about Netflix and SAG, we have to talk about the big news that also broke today, which is that the SAG Awards will air this year on Netflix's YouTube channel. Uh, We can talk about that. Uh, And as of 2024 on Netflix itself, they're kind of setting up their live broadcast capabilities. They've got a Chris Rock live special coming this spring sometime. Um, I think we've talked idly about the idea that award shows may be destined to go to streaming. SAG would have made sense as a first one, although it is one of the shortest award shows. So it's sort of ironic that it's going to have all the space in the world. Um, Rebecca, you wrote about this news for us in the midst of the Globes. It was not nice timing at all. Um, What do do you think is a good choice? I think it's if if we look beyond this year's show, I think it is a a win-win for them because this show has really struggled with ratings, even more so than, you know, the Oscars or the Globes. And and I think they won't have to be held accountable for that starting in 2024 because Netflix doesn't, you know, release ratings or have any of those. And Netflix wants to build into the live television space. So this is an easy way for them to do that. They basically weren't ready to do it this year, which is why we're all going to be watching this on Netflix's YouTube, which I don't, (laughs) we're going to need an instruction manual how to do that. But, um, and it's like, if no one is, I don't know who, how many people watch on VanityFair.com. You'll be able (laughs) to watch the SAG Awards at (laughs) VanityFair.com. So this, it is a bummer for this year. I would say they obviously were shopping the show around and couldn't get a broadcast buyer because obviously broadcast uh, networks are seeing how terribly these shows are doing. And this conversation has been ongoing for quite a few years. And, um, you know, it, it feels like this is the best solution for the SAG Awards for now. Um, I'm going to put my Matt Bellany hat on, you know, and, and pretend I'm on the town and be like, is this Netflix trying to show 
uh, professional sports. Hey, we can do live. Like we did this award show. We're doing this comedy special. You know, like they clearly oh, that's like where the big test money balloon is. for what they really want. That's where the big money is. So um, maybe and that's been like, I think, a white whale for them for a while. So, yeah, I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting. I, is there a conflict of interest? Well, I don't know. Networks would ha- air these shows when they have their own things nominated. So I don't think so necessarily. I just would expect a lot of presenters from Netflix properties. Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like how at the Emmys, if CBS would have its year, you'd have a lot of weird procedural actors. Pres- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we had Anna Gasteyer presenting from American Auto. NCIS Dubai. Here's, you know, Chris O'Donnell's brother or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But like literally, um, yes, I, I I think it's fantastic news, actually. And I think it's the future of most award shows, frankly, because there is no reason at this point for the SAG Awards to be on linear television. It's mm-hmm. just an outdated model. And yeah, I think there's absolutely a case to be made that Netflix is trying to go for a bigger fish in this move. But I don't really care. I think the SAG Awards need a home and if this is the way that they can have a good home with a lot of people have Netflix, it'll get a lot more people to watch. I would think at least for a little bit, I think it's a win all around. It's a win for award shows because they can maintain some relevancy. It's a win for Netflix who, yeah, it's a, and it's also an absolute show of industry faith um, mm. as they try, I think to, there's still those questions that come up about Netflix as a disruptor. It's you still hear it on the campaign trail. And this is, I think, a good a really good move for them PR wise as well. I do. I, unless something has happened and that I have I've missed, I think the Indie Spirit Awards were still looking for a partner mm-hmm. as well. And so that's the other question remaining is, is what, what will happen with them. And that show is also not very far away at this point. And I will be exclusively streaming the Tony Awards from my Instagram account uh, in June. <laughs> so, with Haley Richardson. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the SAG Awards going all in on Instagram live announcements, I guess, showed that they were willing to think digital first for a while now. Um, I wish they would stop doing it at Instagram live because it's always weird and buggy, but uh, I'm not in charge. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week talking more about all of the slew of awards. A lot of guilds have announced awards this week, and we'll just get we'll dive more into those next week because there's just a lot to talk about. In the meantime, find all of our Golden Globes coverage, including from David and Natalie Jarvie, who are there in the room at VanityFair.com. You can follow us on Twitter at HWD and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the most succinct explanation of why this podcast exists goes to David Canfield. Did you know movie stars love dressing up and drinking champagne? I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts.
You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 